Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. So this is part two of our two-part series on investing. Today we're going to cover investment fees, higher risk investment options, and the gendered side of investing. I find mutual funds do typically have higher fees. So maybe mm-hmm. let's jump into kind of what those fees look like. Do you want to walk our listeners through what an MER is? Because I think that's probably the most well-known fee. Yeah, so that's the the management expense ratio, and they're going to range. There'll be a wide range. Um, you have a couple different things, too. You'll have ones that charge up front. Um, you'll have ones that charge at the end, or they have a structure where the interest charge or the percentage charge per year goes down, that kind of thing. There's, a lot, there's lots of different ways um, that fees are structured. Um, I like to look at those fees. They're the cost of the product either way. The ETF is the cost of the product. Part of that is tax. Part of that is management. Part of that um, for mutual funds is hiring the manager. That kind of thing, right? Um, It's just the cost of fund. You have to look at the performance and you have to look at the platform that you're getting it through and if it's worth that cost to you, like anything else. And for me, I guess I tend to try and keep my fees, whether I'm buying mutual funds or ETFs, under about 1%. That is very low. It is, <laughs> yes. And I guess as someone who you know is quite heavily involved in the finance industry, I think that target for me allows me to do enough research that I can find funds that are going mm-hmm. to meet my goals that have a low fee, but um, maybe a higher, again, a higher fee has to mean higher returns or has to mean something else like you're getting another yeah. service with you're that. You're getting some other kind of value. You're getting some other kind of management. Now, there are a couple other different investment types that I wanted to talk about really quickly. And I'm not sure if you've heard of these, Tara, but um, they've come out across my radar in the, in the past little bit. And I would say these are probably more investments for people that have a good understanding of how the investment space works and maybe have some extra money to play around with. So obviously mm-hmm. the first is cryptocurrency. Yeah. I've actually seen uh, an increase in cryptocurrency over the past week or so. Like it's really bounced back. Okay. Almost to the <laughs> levels of December 2017, 16. Like it's getting mm-hmm. back up there, which mm-hmm. is interesting. So we're actually recording this on July 7th. So I'm actually super curious when this episode goes live what the price of like Bitcoin we'll will have be. An update. Um, obviously, there are no regulations on cryptocurrency, so please mm. take it as a grain of salt. But it is interesting. I guess you could make a quick buck on it if you had extra you money could. laying around. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, with anything, I feel like if you don't have a good understanding of the base and. It, I mean, I don't know if my husband will like sharing this. My husband's very into technology. He likes to be on the edge of things. He talked to me about cryptocurrency when it was very new. And I said, listen, I don't know enough about it. I don't know the base of this. I I don't want to get into it. And I don't want to be, I'm never an early adopter. And I definitely don't want to be an early investor. And maybe we missed the boat on there, but 
I'm of the opinion I like to have a little bit more certainty in my returns, which I'm sure you've noticed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, maybe you missed the boat on Bitcoin. Maybe you could have been a multi-billionaire, but I mean... <sighs> yeah, or you held on too long and took that huge drop and then got out at the wrong time. I mean, of course, it, there's if you don't understand what you're getting involved in, I feel like it's just luck. Totally. The second interesting investment that has kind of come across my radar in the past couple of years was actually Lending Loop. Mm-hmm. And what they do is support Canadian small businesses that mm-hmm. can apply for loans. Yeah. So what happens is company XYZ, small company in Canada, asks for a loan. Lending Loop does an analysis on their risk based on mm-hmm. some factors that they have, and they give it a grade, A through E. And based on the grade, that's what the interest rate is. Mm-hmm. And um, based on that, you can choose to invest as little as $25 or as much as you want into each of these loans, and they kind of, in a sense, pay you back as almost a bond, in a sense. Well, it, it is a bond, yeah. right? So my question to you would be, if you're, if you're going to lending loop, why aren't you just investing in a bond portfolio or a bond ETF? Like, why are, why are you going straight to this one company? Why do you believe in this company so much? And why are you, I have thoughts. There's already uh, a few standards in terms of credit rating and those kind of things and bond pricing and it's all there, the information. So what is motivating you to take the additional risk in in this new lending loop? Yeah. Why are you taking additional risk? High returns. So many of those... In a bond. Many of those returns can be, you know, upwards of 10 plus percent. Um, I've put a couple hundred dollars, I think I have $400 in Lending Loop just for fun. And I have had one $25 loan written off, so I lost that $25. Mm-hmm. But I've also seen some of them start to pay back um, those loans at those rates between, you know, 6 and and 15%, which has been interesting. I mean, some of the companies are quite small businesses. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's a, it's a way that you could support small businesses in a sense because you're not going to get those in an ETF on the open market. I suppose, but that does make it a higher risk investment for sure. Oh, totally. And then and then we're talking about high yield bonds. Like we're basically talking about high yield bonds when we're looking at this. And so what I would like to see is the price on that reflective of the risk that I'm investing in or could I get the same yield? Could I get the same yield in a bond? with a lower risk profile. I would like to see that before I would invest in something like that. Two, I want to know why the companies aren't going in a standard route and going to uh, a financial institution that's then going to repackage those because any loan that a financial institution is giving out, they're going to put that in some kind of bond to, to make money off of it. 100%. They want to collect those premiums, right? Totally. I do think for smaller businesses, sometimes though it is very challenging to get lending. And whether that means they're bad business or whatever, I guess it's impossible to know. This was just something interesting, obviously a lot higher risk. And we are talking about things that um, probably a new investor wouldn't look at. I just thought they'd be interesting to bring up. Um, But yeah, I think for sure you have to do your research on the company. You have to be able to look at the financial statements. And you actually have the ability to ask questions. Um, mm-hmm. which was super cool to the company that, and they can answer those questions like, why is your balance sheet like this? Um, but 
something to maybe look into if if that is something that you're interested in I'm not saying yeah I mean if you're interested in it I think for me to be involved with something like that um you know anything to do we're kind of talking to the mix of high yield bonds and private equity in that right I would like to have a lot more resources than I have now in time and money before I start investing in Joe down the ways business who I don't know um because if I'm going to invest in somebody's business, I would like it to be my own or somebody that I know. And I, I can ask them all the questions and maybe have a personal relationship with them and can go through their books. One of the interesting companies that actually came up on that platform was a restaurant I was at in London, Ontario. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to me, it was kind of cool to invest 25 bucks into this restaurant that I had been at and support that mm-hmm. business. And... I guess in that sense, like, I'm also at the point where I have built a, a decent investment portfolio, yeah. but yeah. $25 if it was to go under, and I don't think that one actually did, um, kind of was here nor there. Anyways, it's an interesting thing to look at. Obviously, you have mm-hmm. to assess your risk port- profile, and Tara's much more risk-averse than I am. Yes. Um, <laughs> but my last interesting investing platform that I've come across is called Front Funder, and I believe it's out of Vancouver but you actually have the ability to invest in shares of a company before they've gone public. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's also private equity. But Mm -hmm. um, one of the companies that I invested in, and I think it's the only one to this point, was the Very Good Butchers. So they do a lot of vegetarian and vegan meat. And it's, in a sense, kind of like a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe, but you're still getting equity. So you get either convertible notes or equity at a very low price like it's like a dollar a share or whatever mm-hmm. and you can invest there's usually a minimum and a maximum and it's not crazy but we also got sent like a ton of this vegan meat that ended up being really good um so in that sense to me it was like totally worth it but I'm curious mm-hmm. if that you know will pan out in the future obviously it's kind of a long-term hold you know you buy a couple hundred dollars worth of this company and the hope is mm-hmm. eventually they'll go public yeah yeah but if they don't and if say you want to get out how are you going to sell your shares who are you going to sell your shares to you definitely have to be able to find another investor if that's something that you want again I guess I'm doing it in such low quantities in these companies that you know if I lost that money and I I would say that for all high-risk investments you have to be willing to lose that money you have to be Mm -hmm. able to be like this is not going to bankrupt me you know three hundred dollars isn't going to be the end of my life Mm -hmm. and I think that's like the approach I've taken to it but um, it is very interesting kind of pouring through uh, startup companies financials and so now that I've chatted about all these different types of investments and kind of varying risks from everything from you know bonds to Bitcoin let's talk about risk a little bit more Okay, so really quick, uh, just down the road, is um, lowest risk to highest highest risk uh, is just off the top of my head as follows. So you've got your savings account, you've got your GICs, then you've got your bonds, any other fixed asset, if you want to go into a bond portfolio, that kind of thing, have some mortgages in there, whatnot. Um, then you'd have convertible bonds, uh, preferred shares, straight shares, and then you get into a lot of derivatives that like nobody listening to this is going to be at all interested in, and nor should you be. (laughs) Unless you have millions of dollars and you own a hedge fund. Just saying. Yeah. 
But good to know when you're looking at investments, kind of where they fall on that risk Mm -hmm. scale. Because in a sense, you know, higher risk does equal higher reward most of the time. But you have to be willing to take that risk and you have to be willing for your money to go down to zero. So... And you have to know if it's a good risk. Like if you're if you're looking at, um, I don't know. I mean, one of the riskiest things you can do is is basically going out for business on your own, right? You're taking a lot of money, you're investing it in one thing, that kind of thing, right? Um, getting a mortgage is also a form of a risk too. But you want to see if the benefits behind it are best. And so if you don't have a model, if you don't have a way to look at the risk and return of different stocks or different bonds, that's when I really like these ETFs and mutual funds. I really like them. And all risks are not created equally. Even Mm -hmm. when it comes to shares, when you look at blue chip stocks versus a penny stock or a marijuana stock, Mm -hmm. those have two different risks for sure. You know, something like Procter & Gamble has been around for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, I don't know, but a long time. And Mm -hmm. so a company like that is much more stable than your friend's marijuana company that just went public two days ago. So, you know, Tara's right in the sense that you have to be able to kind of be plotting on a graph in a sense or a line, Mm -hmm. you know, what these different areas of risk are. Yeah. And I mean, you you have other risks that are going to affect everything like interest risk and inflation, which we talked about before. So even if you say I'm doing risk, almost risk free because I'm in a GIC, but you're not gaining enough to get anywhere. So one thing that I wanted to share is that, you know, as you go through life, obviously your portfolio is going to change. Mm-hmm. You're going to have different amounts of equity. You're going to have different amounts of bonds, depending on risk tolerance, how old you are, all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned the Canadian couch potato before, but, you know, the percentage of my portfolio that is in bonds is under the ticker VAB.TO. So it's a Canadian fund. Um, I don't hold a lot in fixed income because I am, I'd like to think relatively young. I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. But usually the equation for looking at how much should be invested in fixed income for things like bonds versus equities is 100 minus your age. So if I'm 30, I'm not 30 yet, but when I turn 30, uh, 30% of my uh, fund, 30% of my portfolio should be in fixed income and 70% in equities. I actually think they've updated it in recent years to 125 minus your age because everyone is living forever. Mm-hmm. But um, well, and I, I like it's so personal as well. And like for me with bonds, it's a great place to start for sure if you're worried. Um, but I don't know that I'd ever go to a bond unless I was starting income planning. Why do I need income from my assets? Why would I have a bond if I don't need income from my assets? And anyway. it's and it's going to be different for everyone, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's actually funny that you don't have any bonds right now because mm-hmm. I thought you were the risk-averse one. So the last area that I really wanted to jump into and I've done a bit of research on is the differences between men and women when it comes to investing. One of the notions that we've heard a lot is women are less confident when it comes to investing. And this is probably going back to our last episode about divorce is they have less experience because a lot of women kind of push off to their counterparts to deal with their finances. And with that Mm -hmm. comes investment. In addition to this, we've talked a lot about the women having less money, earning less money, Mm -hmm. saving less money, and ultimately investing less money. And I think we've talked at length about risk profile. Mm -hmm. So I want to know your thoughts, Tara, on 
the fact that men typically dominate the investment profession and how that perpetuates investment strategies of women in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think you always have to consider um, the gender power dynamic when you're looking at that um, and how comfortable a woman would be talking to a man about finances. Very, very personal. Um and there is a tendency for that power dynamic to shine through unless you get a really great male advisor, I suppose. Do you think, in general, of course, I, I don't want to say all, but mm-hmm. do you think ma- male advisors talk down to their female clients? I would hope not. Uh, definitely not in the experience with me. I mean, I know I'm not... Um... But you're a badass bitch, so... Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was going to say. I know I'm not representative of all women, um, but I think that could definitely come into play. Do you think less women invest because they see a lot of men in the investment industry? Like I've always been of the notion like you cannot be who you cannot see. Mm -hmm. So if you don't see, you know, the Arlene Dickinsons of the world being venture capitalists and investing Mm -hmm. like crazy, are you going to invest as much? Yeah, and I think there's like the intimidation factor as well, which is the power dynamic and feeling that it's a safe space as well, right? You know, you walk in, usually advisors wear suits. Um, It's very formal usually. Um, It's difficult to relax for sure, especially if you have any negative history with men, right? Do you think that that is because of men or do you think that's the industry like forcing those men to wear suits like what if you had a place that was like everyone was wearing t-shirts or polos or whatever and jeans I don't necessarily think that that would change the power dynamic in terms of men and women um and I don't necessarily think it's the industry that's um saying that people have to dress a certain way I think you just have a certain type of person that goes into that profession maybe they like to dress well So maybe a tip to the ladies out there, if you are going in to see your advisor, put your baddest bitch dress or skirt on that you feel the most powerful in. There is like Mm -hmm. a bit of science behind, you know, that Amy Cuddy's like power pose, but you know, don't be afraid to, to go in there and be confident. Yeah. I've never felt at a disadvantage talking to financial advisors. I've never felt intimidated or anything like that. But if you do, yeah, definitely put on your version of the power suit. That's so 1980s, but your version of the power suit. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we talked about this in another episode, but there is like a certain bias that women like to shop and not really save any money and I mean I think we've kind of busted that myth that it's ridiculous but um, from my research in general women typically save more Mm -hmm. than men do but they invest less which is I think Mm -hmm. very dangerous Um, again we want to make sure that we're getting those returns that are above inflation which is sitting at about two percent because women have so much wealth in this country right Mm -hmm. now it's sitting at about 2.2 trillion dollars in Canada that women control and this is actually this shocked me this is going to grow by 70 percent by 2028 and that's not that that's less than 10 years from now and it's and I mean for women to have that much money and not be earning as much as men on that money Uh, that's a huge gap as well. Regardless of why that gap is happening, um, there are enough options that you can take that into your own hands. So if you're feeling apprehensive about getting into the market, the most important thing is about 
getting into the market, like getting some returns. Uh, if you're worried about risk or anything like that, we've told you some pretty good ways to start slow and easy. Yeah, and the more that women own the fact that they have this wealth to control, I think that is, to me, a great way that we can start to you know, deal with the gender wage gap. Mm-hmm. So the last thing I wanted to talk about here before this episode is coming to a close is around financial advisors. And, you know, we talked about the differences between financial advisors and robo-advisors and self-directed. But one of the things that I came across in my research was that financial advisors typically treat women as a homogenized group. Mm. Now, I'm not sure, have you had any experience with that when you were with your financial advisor that, you know, all women are the same? No, uh, like maybe I've just had really good luck. Uh, I'm also incredibly picky. Um, And I'll just be completely honest. The worst uh, financial advisor that I had was a woman. Terrible. She did not ask me any personal questions. It was awful. Um, But yeah, I've never felt like I've been boxed in um, at all. And I think that's key is if you are feeling that way, if you are feeling like they're not understanding your needs, Mm -hmm. you need to fire them. Yeah. And so the four groups of women that from an investment standpoint, we, I guess, are looking at are, you know, women that are, are suddenly single. So we talked about divorce in our last episode and these are the women that are either, you know, they've either lost their spouse or they've gotten a divorce and their biggest thing that they want is financial security. So mm-hmm. for women like that, you you know, you might want to look for a financial advisor that's, that is maybe going to help you get a little bit more of income generating assets because you have been obviously shaken through mm-hmm. this hard time and you, you want a little bit more stability when it comes to your finances. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think somebody who'll give you the time to adjust as well, um, maybe who have worked with recently single women before, um, who are coming from backgrounds of high income earner versus low income earner, that kind of thing. So they have the experience, they know how to navigate it already. So the next two categories of investment women are individuals that are, they're both married, but one of them is the breadwinning female and one of them is the contributor. So what I read was breadwinning females want to just be a part of, you know, making those decisions where contributors actually end up being the educators for children in the relationship when it comes to money. Hmm. And I thought that that was super interesting because obviously if you're the breadwinning female, you're, you're making more money. And these are females that in many situations aren't as involved as they probably should be. And that could be from a variety of different factors. But it was interesting to me that married women that are the contributors to the lower earning spouse were actually more in general, of course, involved in educating their children when it came to finances. Very cool. So the last group was actually the single breadwinning female. And this female is most interested in amassing wealth. And I would guess that that is probably because they realize that there's no other income stream in their life. And so they're probably looking for a financial advisor that is going to help them grow their portfolio as large as possible, but still taking minimal risk. Mm-hmm. I would hope so. 
Um, did you come across, because this seems very sort of um, cis-hetero, did you come across any statistics for uh, same-sex female, like women partners or transgender individuals? No, I didn't. I really, honestly, to be fair, I didn't look into that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a ton of studies that have been done on that. And I'm sure the dynamic... I think in general, a a relationship has a dynamic of, you know, who's going to take control of the finances and who's not. Mm -hmm. Um, I know I can speak to the fact that in our relationship, I'm definitely the one that takes more control of the finances and makes more of the investment decisions. So it definitely depends on personality. Um, But regardless of whether you're the breadwinner or not, I think it is important to note that you need to be involved and you need to understand what's happening in those investments so that you aren't blindsided should something happen. Yeah. And I mean, if we don't have any data on it, I would love to hear from some of our listeners if they've ever felt intimidated going to a financial advisor or investing what they've already come across. If they are a member of the LGBTQ plus community, what has held them back from going to an investor? What roadblocks have they faced that we don't see in any data we've looked at? Totally. So our pink tax rebate for this week is really just to start investing. So as Tara mentioned, whether it's a a bond fund that gets you started or you're looking at a well-diversified portfolio through a robo-advisor or a financial advisor, at the end of the day, all we want you to do is you know start investing. You don't need a lot to get investing. Sometimes it's as little as $25. So whatever you do, open that account this week and transfer some money in and start to grow your money tree. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances. 